Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello. Right, before we start this episode, I have a special announcement. Would you like to be a guest on My Time Capsule? As part of our two-year birthday celebrations, we're asking for your items for a listener's time capsule. All you have to do is email one good and one bad thing and the reason for your choice to mytimecapsulepodcast at gmail.com. Our producer, John, will then choose his favourites and arrange for each winner to link up with me on Zoom to record our chat about your choice. Please email your interest to John by the 11th of April at mytimecapsulepodcast at gmail.com. Good luck. Now... On with the show. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where various people tell me the five things from their life that they wish they still had preserved in a time capsule. And rather magically, we take those things and put them in their own time capsule. That's why we called it My Time. Anyway, they pick four things they cherish and one they rather regret. And to a large extent, that's what we talk about. My special guest in this episode is Dr. Julia Patterson. Now, if you haven't heard of Julia and her work, let me enlighten you. Julia is a doctor who qualified from UCL Medical School in 2010 and became a member of the Royal College of Psychiatrists in 2015. She took a break from her speciality training to set up the organisation Every Doctor and has since devoted herself fully to advocating for NHS staff and patients. Julia began campaigning in 2015, driven by a sense of injustice towards junior doctors and safety concerns about patients. During the junior doctor contract dispute with the then health secretary and famous Cockney rhyming slang, Jeremy Hunt. And I think that joke will pretty much tell you where I stand on this issue. Julia founded the National Health Singers in 2015 with her friend Georgina Wood. The choir wrote a protest song about the effects of NHS cuts and poor treatment of NHS staff, and a video of the song went viral. The choir have subsequently sung to around 2 million people live. 
Julia was a co-founder of the Junior Doctors Alliance, a group that spoke out against the imposition of the sexist new Junior Doctors contract in 2016, and most recently founded The Political Mess, one of the UK's largest online political forums for all UK doctors, a place where they could speak up about problems they face at work and find solutions together. This online community is visited by an average of 12,000 to 15,000 doctors every day and serves as a platform for positive change. Julia feels strongly that the time has come for doctors to get together and act as a team, winning campaigns which benefit everyone and improving the lives of doctors and patients. If you agree with Julia as I do, then this is the episode of My Time Capsule for you. If you disagree with her, then this is also the episode of My Time Capsule for you. And if you agree or disagree, I think you'll still enjoy hearing this lovely, intelligent, caring person tell you about the five things from her life she'd choose to put in a time capsule. Anyway, I hope you do. Here it is now. I'm really flattered and touched, Mike, that you've approached me. But, I mean, it's a bit strange because... This is the first time I've been interviewed just for myself rather than sort of invited on to talk about something specific to do on our campaign. But I, I'm really grateful. Thank you. Well, I'm sure they must be tied together. You wouldn't have become so passionate about what you do, I think, if it wasn't for who you are. Yes, I think that's definitely true. I mean, I suppose that's what's interesting when you listen to your podcast and you hear about people's stories. People are drawn towards other people who are passionate about things, aren't they? And and when you hear the backstory or the things that are meaningful to someone, it often gives you a different perspective on it, doesn't it? Yes. And I'm particularly keen on the work you're doing. It's a great passion of mine. And I I don't understand why it's not a great passion of everybody who lives in this country. To me, it's the great pride that we should have in being British, the NHS. Yes. Oh, I think a, an awful lot of mistruths have been shared with the public. Because actually, if you get talking to people and explain exactly what's happening at the moment, privatisation and you know, underfunding and leaky roofs that haven't been fixed and things. It's just sensible, <laughs> regardless, actually, of people's political persuasions. They just want to have a place which is safe for patients. And it's just common sense, isn't it? But I think there's an awful lot that has been said over the last 10 years or so, which is simply untrue about what's going on with the NHS. So people have a perception now that it's failing, it's not good enough. And That's very concerning, isn't it, for the future? Isn't it just? When, in fact, it's an extraordinary organisation doing amazing work. And there has, you know, without doubt, one of the arguments that people use in politics all the time is that we're pumping an enormous amount of money into the NHS. And we are, Mm -hmm. but just not enough. Yes, absolutely. And we've got huge staffing problems and retention problems. And all of those things actually impact on patients as well. Because if you have a working environment where people don't feel supported and they're not being looked after then people's service delivery reduces and everybody has a worse time as a result. So it doesn't just come down to money. It's A lot of it's about morale and, you know, the environment people are treated in, how holistic that feels. So there are huge problems because it's an absolutely enormous organisation and it's, you know, there are, there are aspects of it which need to be sorted out and made more efficient. I think the problem is the bits that are made more efficient aren't always the right ones each time. And each time some kind of overhaul happens, it causes change and all of that actually disrupts the service enormously and 
costs a lot of money because you know consultants are brought in for this and that and none of those things benefit the patients you know so it's a very complex beast now the NHS (laughs) particularly as it's been you know increasingly privatized there's a lot of people with a stake in it and it's very fragmented it's not the service it was 30 years ago unfortunately and it's going to take an awful lot of mobilizing from the public in order to push that that's what we want because I do think that is what the public wants broadly yes and in fact, even to explain the idea that it's being privatised, I think almost everybody, if you said to them, is the National Health Service being privatised? They'd say, no, no, it's it's not, no. Absolutely. And something that we sometimes get from people is saying, like, goodness me, we must protect the NHS. It mustn't be privatised. But, you know, the idea that it is currently being privatised certainly has not filtered through. And some of that is because there's a lot of politicians who are not being honest about it. Um, 7 to 11% of the NHS budget in England went to private companies last year and that's a huge chunk of money absolutely there's a lot of people around the world who have recognized that health is a an area where you can generate enormous profit particularly from patients with chronic health conditions you've just got to look at what's happening in the US that's not a healthcare system that we want to be emulating and yet the mm. system changes that the structural changes to the NHS which are being pushed through with the health and care bill at the moment are going to lead us to a similar system What's extremely difficult is that the bill itself is pretty hazy on detail and talks about things like removing bureaucracy, but it doesn't, as you say, state we're going to privatise it and everyone can make loads of money. Yes. So it's difficult to read between the lines and... privatisation campaigners get accused quite often of being conspiracy theorists because of that <laughs> you know because you know, people say you've got nothing to hang this theory of yours on and, and yet there's a lot of people who've been studying this in depth for a really long time they're noticing the changes and it's not good um i suppose the other thing is uh, probably with all public services to a certain extent the NHS is a, is a human-led institution it's, it's based on people and interactions between staff who care for patients and patients who need care and as soon as you put profit into that equation and anyone is making decisions and knows at the back of their mind that there's a cost implication or that there's a there's money to be made it impacts on that caring relationship yes and that's wrong I mean I think an awful lot of people who are pro-business and you know see no problem with people making money in lots of other areas agree that in health that cannot come into the equation in a public health care system. No, absolutely not. And you'll notice it yourself if you have treatment that is basically being run by one of those companies. Ironically, you'll get it quickly. Mm -hmm. But the reason you'll get it quickly is because people are making money from it. That's exactly it. And a situation like a radiology department can be used as a sort of cash cow in that way because it's a deliverable service it's a finite thing um, it can utilize technology very efficiently and so there are aspects of the service which can run efficiently with a private provider like that and those people will be making lots of money mm. but in terms of the sustainability of that model it's not very sustainable because let's say the private company stops doing that runs out of money themselves or decides it's no longer their priority quite often it ends up falling through because the private company decides of their own volition they no longer want to do this anymore um, and also there's communication issues with stuff like this Mike but um, if you've got a radiologist sitting at home looking at scans which is what often happens there'll be somebody takes the, the scan Often the files will then be sent to somebody else who spends time on their computer looking through the scans and then they will send the information to the NHS 
health provider, you know, who need, who need the information from it, then that's mm-hmm. a disrupted system. And you lose those human interactions between staff members as well that you would have in a hospital. Um, if, if it was done in the NHS, you know, doctors walk down to the scanner, have a chat with the person who's going to be doing the scan. The radiologist is on the phone so you can talk them through the results. And it, it just mm-hmm. makes the information so much richer and it allows you to care for the patient better. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Julia, well, we could talk about it for hours. Sorry. <laughs> um, no, no, I'm happy to, but uh, I think we'll let it come through in a way by discovering why you've dedicated so many years of your life to becoming part of this system. So let's look at the things that you're going to put into a time capsule and see where it leads us. Great. Okay. Okay. All right, good. So what's the first thing you've chosen? The first thing I've chosen is an orange slide uh, for a toddler, which (laughs) (laughs) this has got a bit of a story behind it. So when I had our two children, they were only 17 months apart. So I had a newborn and a toddler at the same time. I feel for you. I feel for you. (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm just amazed by people who have more than two children, quite frankly, because it was incredibly intense. And my husband was working really, really intensively as well. He's an intensive care consultant. And he was also working as an A&E consultant at that point because he's dual trained. And we were living in central London. I'd sort of got a vague idea in my mind that I wanted to set up every doctor but had no idea how I was going to do it. And because of that, we'd made the decision to live in a, a one bedroom flat with our you know, baby and toddler because we were trying to save money. And I was trying to work out if I could afford to take some time out to set up a campaign organization. But it made for <laughs> a very intense couple of years. Um, we live in um, East London and we really love the area we live in, but it's not very child friendly. And it was very difficult because I was having to get a pram up several flights of stairs um, <laughs> on my own <laughs> with these two babies. I got extremely strong arms. But anyway, um, there was a place that I used to go to a couple of times a week and it became a real refuge for me. It was like a toddler play area thing. And my little boy um, was an extremely active toddler and we paid a fortune to be a member of this club. We had hardly any money because I wasn't working and, you know, London childcare prices are so expensive. But we kept going to this place because it had a slide in it that my little boy used to run to. And I would stand there with the, the newborn in a little harness. And my toddler would just go up and down this slide for like an hour, an hour and a half. And it was this <laughs> it was this place where they were trying to run sort of sessions teaching toddlers about all these highfalutin ideas that were far beyond their capabilities, like seasons or, you know, climate change. I mean, you name it, they were trying to make toddler versions of these lessons. And so all of the other toddlers in the room were engaged in this sort of educational situation and my toddler had no interest and I would sort of try and get him involved but all he wanted to do was go up and down this slide and I remember texting my husband from this play area once saying we might as well just set up a direct debit to this orange slide once a month because this is all we do and it would take me an hour and a half on the bus to get to this place but I really look forward to it as well because I think when you've got small children like that, um, you feel like you're going a bit crazy because you're so sleep deprived. <laughs> and I wasn't living in an area where there were a lot of other families either. And so to just to turn up somewhere where there were other parents and, you know, no one would mind your toddler climbing up and down a slide again and again. It, it, it felt like um, 
you know, I don't know, there's, there's something really strange about that slide. And I actually saw one recently in someone's house and I just had this real flashback of sort of mixture oh. of nostalgia and dread, I would say, of those, you know, magical, magical months, but also honest to God, it was really tough. Yeah, it's a shared experience of nearly all parents. It's a world you think will never end. Every minute is an hour. It is. It's so intense. And and then there's a lot of guilt tied up with it as well, I think, because you're aware. I mean, I'm very aware that I'm so lucky to have two healthy children. And I was so happy to have them. It was all I'd ever wanted. And yet I also was finding it really, really difficult. And I think that's quite a confusing way to feel when you've got young kids. You know, you feel like you should be grateful all the time. Mm. But actually, it's really stressful and tiring. And, you know, you get a bit weepy sometimes about it. (laughs) You know, you you put them to bed at night when they're that age and there's this wave of relief. And then you go back in and check on them 20 minutes later and they look so angelic and lovely. And you think, oh, how they're so beautiful. I love them. I miss them already. (laughs) (laughs) I want to wake them up. No, no, I don't. Julia, you see... When I said to you that the NHS would come up, I'm afraid it's me that's going to bring it up straight away again. Because you talk about yourself, you're a qualified doctor at this time. Yeah. You had been working as a doctor. Your husband is a consultant in the intensive care unit and the A&E unit. Yeah. Working probably incredibly long hours, I should think. And yet you live in a one-bedroom flat in East London. After all those years of training and work to get where you are, you can't really afford even somewhere to put your own slide for your child. Well, I mean, we were saving at the time. I mean, that's part of it. And I think doctors are paid a lot better than all of the other staff members in the NHS, certainly. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I qualified in 2010, I was doing what's quite unusual, actually, for a junior doctor. I did a 40-hour-a-week job, which is not very many hours <laughs> compared to a lot of other people. And I started on £22,500. I don't think people are aware that, you know, after all of that training, you start on quite a low salary and it takes a while, um, you know, years and years for it to build up. And, you know, I wouldn't complain about the amount that consultants earn or GPs earn because they do earn a lot more than the average UK citizen. Mm-hmm. But doctors work incredibly hard for that money. It, it's very, very stressful work. And also, I think London prices are just absolutely astronomical. Yes. I mean, I think for most people doing normal jobs, central London's just not somewhere you can afford to live anymore. It's awful, really. It's disgraceful. <laughs> anyway, how old are your children now? My little boy has just turned six at the weekend and my little girl's four and a half. So they're lovely. I mean, it changes. You know, people tell you this when you have babies and you don't believe them. (laughs) But it does change so fast, doesn't it? Yes, I've got grandchildren around the same age and almost week to week when I see them, I miss the growing that I've not seen. Yes. I enjoy the process of relearning things through their eyes. Just yesterday, I was having a conversation with my oldest grandchild, who's nine, because my granddaughter had written an essay where she'd used a term to describe speed. And my grandson had said, that's not the fastest thing. Mm. Light is the fastest thing, isn't it, Granddad? And I said, it is, yes. And I said, how fast do you think light is? And he said, I, I should think probably 130 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing, isn't it? And, and you're right, because I think children do see things differently. And we stop talking about those types of things as adults, don't we? Yes, we do. 
we do forget to look at the world through the eyes of children and, and to rediscover it and to re-examine it, in fact. Mm. I think if you put the argument that you put through your organisation to a child, they would go, well, obviously. Yes, I think so. It's simpler, isn't it? They just see the world in a clearer way, I think. So I think it's really healthy, actually, spending time around small kids. Yes, well, that's a good reason to put that lovely orange slide into your time capsule as your first item. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great thing. I'll never forget it. What a lovely memory. There we are. Okay, that's item number one, Julia. So what's number two? Um, number two is the song which myself and lots of other doctors created, which was my first sort of foray into campaigning, really. Um, what happened was there was a junior doctor contract dispute which happened in sort of 2015 mm -hmm. and doctors have had a quite a steady career you'd have to work very hard but you know you'd know what to expect and that if you worked hard and passed your exams and looked after patients well then you could go through your career and at the end of it have a, a decent pension and all of those things that we kind of associate with the NHS and what's happened in recent years is that NHS staff aren't well supported anymore in a lot of ways. They're really put down in the media and attacked about various things, often which aren't true. And it's become a very stressful place to work. But the first time I experienced this as a doctor was when I'd been working for about five years as a doctor at this point. And I was a psychiatry trainee. So you do your specialist training after you've worked for a couple of years in all different specialties. And I decided mm -hmm. I wanted to train as a consultant psychiatrist. So you do six years of training in psychiatry and you do a lot of exams during that time. And I was about two or three years through and I was pregnant when Jeremy Hunt decided he wanted to change the junior doctor contracts. Um, and for the first time, myself and a lot of other people were seeing a lot of media messaging, which was very negative about doctors and saying things which we didn't feel to be true about provision of healthcare to patients and safety at the weekends. And there was a contract being drawn up, which would disadvantage anyone working less than full time. But, you know, most of those people were women. And it was incredible because a lot of doctors shared their views about all of this in, in a couple of Facebook groups. and. I've got a, a background where I've done a lot of singing. And so I think lots of people were doing lots of different sort of grassroots projects to try and counter this media messaging. None of us had any experience, so it was all pretty amateur. But myself and my friend Georgina are both singers. And so we decided we were going to write a protest song that we could go along and sing at rallies and things like that. We got a group of, um, well, hundreds of doctors, but 50 of us recorded this song and we did it in collaboration with an absolutely incredible choral director who's called Mark Delissa. And he's the, the man who made the arrangement for Harry and Meghan's Stand By Me in, in their wedding. Oh. He's a gospel choir coordinator. And he's an incredible person. And he came on board and brought a songwriter on board. And we, we wrote a, a song which we decided to release as a single, actually. But we had this amazing experience where people came together and were able to sing about something they felt really passionately about. And the song's called NHS Yours. And the, we spent a weekend going around London doing a music video for it, which, again, it wasn't particularly professionally done, although the videographer themselves were professional. We were just people who felt very strongly about something. And the idea of the song was that the NHS belongs to the people of the UK and that the government are you know, not looking after staff and, you know, it's going to, 
it's going to go unless we stand up for it really but there was a video taken of us singing the song in a tube station and it went viral I think it was a teacher took a video of us it was incredible Mike because it showed me for the first time the power of people coming together and doing something and we used the song as a hook really it was a song but we used it as a way of getting junior doctors onto the news talking about the contract and talking about the messaging that was happening in the media and so it was sort of a clever way of speaking up politically whilst looking <laughs> like we were a bit fluffy and just sort of people in a choir you know um because what we found is that a lot of very high profile media outlets will interview a choir as a sort of fluff piece but then you could get your political messaging in there and it was it was during a time when actually the media were not coming to the junior doctor readily for our views on any of this so it proved quite a powerful way of speaking up about something and i found it absolutely intoxicating just being around people who were trying to change something for good and were coming together and people were very very upset it was just like a support network as well that choir so the song itself i think should go in the time capsule <laughs> the <laughs> thing that is horrible about the song mike is that if you listen to it now things have only got worse in the last six years and we were talking about them six years ago um everybody who was taking an interest was aware of what was happening with underfunding and understaffing and cuts and you know staff not being spoken about in an honest way and this government who remain in power have continued along that trajectory mm. and it's appalling. You know, we've been doing a lot of work in the last few months speaking up for GPs because they've experienced quite a similar series of attacks, including from our health secretary in, in the House of Commons, suggesting they're not seeing patients face to face. And it's resulted in a lot of patient abuse towards staff. Well, the very fact that almost every phone call that you make to a doctor is started with somebody saying, please be polite to our staff. The fact that you have to ask that before every phone call shows you how bad it's got, I think. It's awful. I mean, we're hearing about an awful lot of admin staff who've had to leave their jobs, actually, because of the stress and the strain of picking up those phone calls, Mike. And I don't think any of us are under any illusion that people are uniformly receiving incredible, efficient care on the day that they need it because the service has been underfunded and all of the things I've been saying. I mean, you know, but the staff are the people who are trying to keep things going and working incredibly hard to keep mm. patients safe. And yet people's frustrations mean that they're taking it out on staff. So it's really sad. It's ironic, isn't it, that in fact, Jeremy Hunt was the man who introduced that new contract where he was accusing junior doctors of, in a way, being lazy for not wanting to work at weekends yeah. and having blood on their hands. You know, it's your fault people are dying because there aren't enough doctors around. Absolutely. And, I mean, he did manage to impose it on doctors in England. In fact, junior doctors in England are still working under that contract. And mm. junior doctors work so many hours, Mike. Like I, can't, I honestly can't tell you how hard they work. When I was doing my A&E rotation, so when I had been out of uni for about two years, I worked for six months in A&E. We would work three weekends in five and all the other shifts are all over the place as well. You work in the middle of the night, you're doing night shifts. You, know, you barely see any of your friends and family during that time. And I only did it for six months. But, you know, any doctor who's working in what we call an acute care environment, so intensive care, the admissions ward, a &E, all of those places, they work crazy shifts. And you, you work 
I mean, it, you know, you could, they've changed this now because it's seen not to be safe anymore. But when I was a junior doctor in psychiatry, you would work seven night shifts on the trot and a night shift is 13 hours long. So oh. for seven days in a row, you're working 13 hours, 13 hours, 13 hours. It was, you know, and by the end of that seven day period, you feel like you're going to fall over. You're so tired. The relentlessness of it must be so tiring. It is relentless and you feel a degree of responsibility towards your colleagues as well because you know that when your shift comes to an end and you are allowed to go home, the pile of patients that need to be seen is ever growing. It never goes down to zero. It's, I mean, it's really extraordinary. And so it's very concerning, Jeremy Hunt, sort of, he's, he, I think he's remarketed himself <laughs> probably with his political ambitions in mind. I'm very worried about it. It wasn't just the junior doctors he was affecting either. He's removed the nursing bursary for student nurses, which, so it's a bit different training for nurses and doctors. If you're a doctor in training, uh, a medical student, you don't actually work on the wards. You, you do a lot of studying, but you're not counted in the staff numbers. Whereas student nurses go and do really long shifts and they're caring for patients. And, and that bursary, it's not an enormous amount of money, but it would allow a lot of people to go into nurse training, be able to afford to do it. And it, all it means is that you're throwing up another barrier that's going to stop some people going into nurse training. My mother had that very bursary and then gave another 25 years to the NHS. That's amazing. But she might not have decided to do it or been able to do it, Mike, if she hadn't had that money. No, no, I'm, I'm fairly sure she wouldn't have been, no. It's just really sad. And, and also the debt that people end up getting into through doing their training as well. It hangs over them for years and years. Debt's not a good thing. So I don't no. know, there's so many, <laughs> so many problems. It's terrible, isn't it, to have something like that song, to have NHS yours out there and to be so proud of it and to have loved the involvement in it and the, the effect it had, but then in the long run to see that it had no effect or, in fact, that things have got worse. That must be so frustrating. I'm not surprised you've started this movement. Well, I think what's really incredible, actually, is that, yes, things are, <laughs> things are getting worse. Things have got worse politically, but my sense is that the public are, we're not silly. And I think you can only get away with doing these types of things for so long before public opinion turns and people start cottoning on to what's happening. Because you can blame doctors for not working enough weekends if you sold that lie enough times. But you're not going to blame the doctor for the leaky roof in a hospital or the fact that you had an MRI scan booked with a private company and then it gets cancelled because the company's gone under. And mm. it only takes a few of these instances for each person for, I think, the penny to drop and for people to start thinking, hang on a second, what's really happening? And what we're finding online is that there's a huge number of people who, who have been paying very close attention to this situation and they're very angry about it, Mike, and they're willing to help campaigning organisations like ours to hold governments and politicians to account. And I don't think that's going to go away. I think it's building. So, Yes, it's not only the services, though, is it? My local hospital has fantastic services, I have to say, but we don't own it. We're renting it. Yes. And it's that sort of, you know, we're providing new hospitals. Well, you're not. We're not paying for new hospitals. Somebody else is, and they're going to reap a profit from it. Absolutely. And and while, you know, local services are saddled with that debt, it also prevents them from putting that funding into new things or, you know, shoring up the existing services because they've got debt hanging over them. And the government could choose to write off that debt that they have existing for many, many NHS hospitals, but they haven't done it so far. Well, as I think they usually say in those circumstances, there isn't some money tree, you know. 
And you go, well, there is. It's called us. Yes. Just ask us. Yes. We could contribute a bit more if you promise that you're going to spend it on the things that we want you to spend it on, not on £4.3 billion worth of mates of fraudsters. But that's the thing, isn't it? It doesn't feel like there's um, there's a shortage of cash when it's to give to a private company during this pandemic. So much money has been wasted in stupid decision-making, incompetent decision-making mm. regarding not just healthcare services, lots of different things, but, you know, billions, like you say, and then quibbling over increasing the funding to the NHS. It just doesn't seem to make sense. I had somebody say to me at the beginning of the pandemic, are you going to start your own company? And I said, no, why? They said, because you can get £50,000. Right, you pay it back over a long time or they may even forget about it. And it seems yeah. that a lot of people did that and then just disappeared. I know. It's horrible, actually, isn't it? Mm. It's really depressing thinking about things in those terms mm. because I like to think that as a society we like to care for one another, <laughs> be responsible. And the feeling I have is that like, when you get governed by people who behave in a particular way, then that filters down. Everybody starts thinking in a more selfish way, wanting to look after themselves because they're looking out for their own interests. And we've lost to a great extent, I think, that idea that we're supposed to be caring for one another in this society. And taking personal responsibility for the things that go wrong. Enough said. Yes. Okay, well then uh, we shall put NHS yours playing away permanently in there. (laughs) With a video going, you can say, there's me, there's me, look. Yeah. That's in the time capsule for you. Brilliant. So that's your second item. Brilliant, indeed. Let's put in number three. Right, it's time to take the traditional middle of the podcast ad break. I wonder if there's any adverts for private health care. Mm, I doubt it. See you in a minute. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome back. Let's get back to Dr. Julia Patterson and discover what else she'd like to put in her time capsule. Number three is a little wooden fox that my husband gave to me when we were, before we were married. And he's a little orange fox that my husband bought from a a little shop near where we live in East London. And he was a companion to me um, because 
I was having a very difficult time. I had married somebody else and we had a short marriage with no children. And I had moved down to Bristol to be with this man, my husband, and it didn't work out. And we, we realized that quite quickly and decided to get divorced. But I was working in a hospital in Bristol. I'd just started my psychiatry training and I wanted to go back to London because London is where I trained and it's where all my friends were and it's where my family were. And I was struggling a bit down in Bristol because I'd only moved there a year or two beforehand and I didn't really have much of a support network. And as amicable as you know, my divorce was, and it wasn't hugely complicated. There was no going to courts or anything like that, which I was really fortunate for. Um, it's still a very isolating time going through a divorce. And mm-hmm. it's a time when you do an awful lot of soul searching. And I just wanted to be around my friends really, and kind of have an opportunity to kind of reconnect with the life that I wanted to build for myself after my divorce. And I had a really tough time because I had applied to transfer my training to London from Bristol, but they have certain stipulations around allowing you to do that because you've kind of signed up for a three-year training block. And I was only about six months or a year into my training block when I divorced and asked them permission to do this. But I was told that my circumstances didn't warrant a, a move. And so I was kind of stuck in a place where I no longer had a home because my husband owned our home and uh, I didn't have a car and I was living in a quite a rural area where you had to drive across the city to various different locations to see patients and I didn't have friends and I felt really lonely and unsupported and when I got together with my now husband who's also called Mike good man he gave me this little fox and I used to go up to London at the weekend to see him and I used to catch an incredibly early train on a Monday morning back to Bristol and this little fox came everywhere with me in my pocket and it's amazing I think sometimes the power that a small inanimate object can give to you during a tough time. I would hold him in my hand and somehow I would feel connected to where I wanted to go And he's now on a shelf in our house and our children sometimes pick him up, but I'm quite protective over this. I I put him on a high shelf and he's not for them to play with because I don't want him to be broken. I suppose I'd like to put him in the time capsule because in this day and age where we're so focused on technology and we're on our phones all the time and we're traveling all over the place, sometimes it's something very simple that grounds you. And this little fox is really important to me. And also, to all intents and purposes, worthless, really. Yeah, no, absolutely. And yet, if you know, if the house was burning down, I'd grab it. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Yes, not the, I want to put my 20-carat diamond ring in because it'll see me through everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think when you're going through a time like that where there's an awful lot of change and you, you've decided that you're not happy with the way things are going, you're not happy with your life and you're going to make a big leap, There's an awful lot of uncertainty and people who you care about maybe question your choices because they're not quite sure and they don't really know why you're doing it. And Mm. to be able to reflect and think, no, it was the right thing (laughs) is a good thing. And so I I think reflecting on hard times is really important, not just to forget them, you know. Lovely. All right. So the little orange fox made of wood goes into your time capsule. Right. Item number four. Well, 
kind of alongside the fox, really. At that same time, I met a really fantastic doctor. She's now a friend of mine and we don't see each other very often. But when we do, I really cherish our time together. But she was my senior at work. I was working in a psychiatric ward and she was the registrar, which is the kind of second in command to the consultant. So she was kind of in charge of the day to day that was going on in the ward. And I sat down with her one lunchtime and we were just chatting as we normally did. And she asked how I was. And I told her that I was really unhappy. And I don't know really why I decided I was going to open up to her because um, we didn't know each other terribly well at that point. And she was my senior colleague and the, the NHS can be quite hierarchical. So sometimes those barriers would feel a little bit like you wouldn't want to broach them. But she's an incredibly warm person. And I told her that I was getting a divorce and I didn't really know what I was doing with my life. And she had been through a divorce herself for a few years previously. And she asked if I'd like to move in and become her lodger, which I did. And it was incredible because she was very, very supportive of me. And she's an amazing psychiatrist. Um, she looks after learning disability people who live down in Somerset. So anyway, I was living in her house and her house was in the middle of nowhere. And I was living there and traveling to work every day in central Bristol. And I didn't have a car. So the only way I could get mm. to work was on this bus that came to the tiny village that we lived in in Somerset once in the morning and it'd take about an hour and a half or two hours to actually get to where I needed to go at work so I'd get on the bus at 6 30 a.m in the middle of nowhere and my life had changed so significantly in the previous few months and getting on this bus which came it was often foggy it was the middle of winter um, and I had this yellow <laughs> this yellow coat that I used to wear and I remember the bus driver always used to comment on my coat <laughs> But I used to call this bus the magic bus um, because it felt like I was in an alternate reality. I'd get on this bus, there was hardly anyone else on it, and it would take ages winding its way into Bristol every day. And during that kind of hour and a half, I did so much soul searching and listened to music, and it felt like I was transported somewhere else. It was a really bizarre experience, but really magical in a way, I think. I think once you've had children and your time is so taken up by their needs and your responsibility to them and so structured. You see those times from when you were younger in a different light. And I, I really relish the, the fact that I had that period of time sitting on that magic bus <laughs> and thinking about my life. And I honestly think, Mike, that, you know, divorce wasn't pleasant. I didn't <laughs> enjoy it, obviously. And I didn't enjoy what came after where I had to reevaluate everything. And I really felt like I was starting at square one again. But I don't think I would have started every doctor if I hadn't been through that challenging time. Because I think sometimes you need everything to get shaken up and it allows you to see the world differently. And that's what happened for me in the magic bus. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I came back to London eventually. and The bloke had gone off his route then. Yeah. <laughs> he probably wanted to wear the woman in the, in the yellow I coat. I beg your pardon. I've got to take this young lady here in a yellow coat. She's got to go all the way to London. I must admit, I must have seemed like quite a strange character in my yellow coat, carrying a wooden fox, looking a bit <laughs> lost. <laughs> she says she's a doctor. We all know she isn't. Exactly. <laughs> Forcing yourself to do something like that can be really transformative. And I know it sounds silly that I fixed all this importance to a bus journey, but I trod quite a sort of standard expected route, I think, kind of 
I'd bought a flat with my husband and I was settled down and I had a job and it was all quite safe. And I decided to upturn my whole life because it didn't feel right. But standing on a corner in the middle of a village, it was freezing cold and, you know, relying on that. And I don't know, it did something to me. I think sometimes mm. things like that can be transformative. And it might seem a bit weird that I'm putting these things in a time capsule, but I think sometimes there's a period in your life which, in retrospect, you can recognise as being incredibly important for shaping who you are because you've thought really hard about things and you've forced yourself to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think what it taught me was, and I, I think there's an awful lot of people in this country who are struggling a great deal more than I ever did in life. And I'm very aware of that with my job, mm-hmm. but to recognize that you don't need a car, you don't need to have a flat, you don't need to have any of those comforts. Actually, what you need is to, is to feel like you're, you're being true to yourself <laughs> without sounding too, too trite, but it's, it, that brings happiness and that brings purpose, I think, you know. Well, and also that act has led you to do it again. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you had the confidence and the courage. Oh, there you are, a trained doctor, being a doctor, which, you know, you've spent many, many years. Oh, six years as a training for psychiatry. And how long did you train to qualify as a doctor before that? I was at uni for six years, and it could have been five, but they used to tell us that we should take an extra year doing what's called an interclated BSc to give us the edge in getting jobs. So I spent a year doing history of medicine, which I loved. Mm. And then I spent, well, I worked as a doctor for about 10 years, but I um, I had a couple of maternity leaves in the middle of that. So yeah, it was, it's a, it was a long time. And then you decide, look, this is important enough and somebody needs to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to start this organisation and see where it leads because we need to make ourselves heard. And you have done. Yes. I mean, I think a lot of people who do things like this, you get to the point where you think, well, if no one else is going to do it, I'll do it because someone needed to do it but actually a lot of the and this is what's amazing about these things the energy and the ideas and the creativity and the drive doesn't come from me I just become a vessel for it everybody else is they're working on the front line they tell me what's happening and they drive it you just need one person I think sometimes to say I'll be the person with the loudspeaker or I'll be the one who sends the emails to the journalists or whatever. You still need to decide to get on that bus. You could just ring up and say, Do you know, it's really difficult for me to get in today. It's foggy, it's cold. And you didn't. And you haven't again. I think if you've had a time in your life where you've taken the not obvious path and then you've realised you're happier for it, it makes you feel really free because you realise that you can take another chance. And I'm not saying that you should chop and change plans all the time or cancel things or, you know, never have courage of your convictions, but but you don't have to do things in the way that you're told, you know, that there's more than one route. And I think once you realise that, and I I didn't realise that until the age of 27, I don't think, um, it's quite liberating. Mm -hmm. Because you realise you have options. And once you realise you have options, you don't feel trapped anymore and then you feel happier. Yes. You're very inspiring. Well done. Okay, we're going to put the magic bus into the time capsule. Is that all right? Yes, please. Okay, in it goes. There'll be a little yellow jacket hanging over the seat (laughs) waiting for you. Morning, miss. Nice jacket. No, he used to. He didn't say nice jacket. He used to say why are you wearing a bright yellow jacket? And I think that's quite an interesting thing to say because he wasn't telling me he didn't like it, but he was questioning my choice. And I used to think, 
well, I don't know why I'm wearing a yellow jacket. <laughs> but, you know, but I sort of clearly stand up like a small thumb and it's a bit embarrassing now. <laughs> um, anyway. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, so we've got, sadly, we've got one final thing to put in. Well, and that is going to be the thing that I absolutely do not want in the time capsule, or indeed anywhere at all, is my dance GCSE. <laughs> so <laughs> I was a bit of a swatty kid and I worked really hard. I was very sort of diligent and a bit quiet and I wasn't competitive. I, I don't ever remember sort of comparing how I was doing to any of the other kids, but I had this personal sense that I had to do really well. And I got a lot of um, satisfaction from that, like probably at, at an age when a lot of other kids are, you know, getting enjoyment from other stuff. So as a teenager, I wasn't at all rebellious. Um, in fact, I remember once as a teenager, and this is quite an embarrassing admission, I've always been quite moralistic about things. And I never had a detention at school. And uh, one of the teachers thought I was passing a note in class once to my friend and gave me what's called a conduct note. You had to get three conduct notes to get detention. And I was so aggrieved by the idea that I had been given a <laughs> conduct note and it wasn't fair that I contested it and had it striked from the record. So I was quite sort of probably quite unbearable actually as a child. But anyway, doing GCSEs, I wanted to do lots of GCSEs because I wanted to work really hard and do really well at them. And we were given the option that you could get out of doing PE if you did dance GCSE at the same time. So during that same you know, time during the week when other people would be outside in the cold and the rain, which I did not like, you could be inside dancing and not just that, but it could be, you know, you could get something from it in terms of, as I saw it, academic achievement. But I was terrible at dancing <laughs> and nobody alerted me to this really. I mean, I think I enjoyed it and I somehow thought that would be enough. And because I was good at studying for things, I thought, well, it's fine because I'll do well on the theory aspect of this and it, it won't matter. You could sing, so you thought, well, I'm musical. I could sing, but they weren't marking me on that, unfortunately. No. <laughs> but anyway, um, I got a C, which compared to my other GCSE results wasn't very good. And luckily, I'm now old enough that people don't ask me my GCSE results. But when I was young, when I was in my teenage years... I was very proud of the rest of my exam results and my friends were quite studious as well. And so we would compare our results and then we went to university, medical schools, a lot of studious people around and people would ask, you know, what did you get for your GCSEs? Hmm. And so I would reel off that I had 10 A stars, an A and a C. And of course, <laughs> the only thing that they were interested in was what the C was in. And yeah. so I was probably a bit of a show off about the rest of it and I would be very proud of them. But because I was moralistic, I couldn't pretend it hadn't happened. I would mention it each time and then I would have an excruciating conversation where the person would say something like, oh, well, you're not very good at dancing then. And it was at a time when, you know, not being good at dancing was really embarrassing. And so I just resented so vehemently that I had done this GCSE. And so I just wish I'd never done it, Mike. It was so embarrassing. <laughs> Those extra exams you take. I did typing. Typing? Yeah. Isn't that weird? Did you do well at it? It was an extra O level, basically because it meant we went to the girls' school to learn it. Oh, I see. The fact that the whole class was just full of girls and there were about two blokes who chose this course, great choice. But also the teacher who taught typing, 
just about the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I think I may have got an F. Oh. <laughs> yes. It's just funny thinking about what makes those decisions for us when we're at that age, isn't it? Why do we decide to do certain things? I mean, recently somebody asked me why I decided to become a doctor. And I do care about people a great deal. And I think that definitely came into it. But quite honestly, it was because I really liked those television dramas of doctors and I just <laughs> thought it looked really glamorous. Yeah. It bears absolutely nothing to do with the reality of being a doctor at all. But no. when you're 15, you don't realise that, do you? No, no. And in fact, now when people say to you, why did you become a doctor? You say, well, I became a doctor because I thought it would be a good thing to do. But really, all I want to do is dance. Except <laughs> yeah, badly, dance badly. <laughs> I just, someone should have been honest with me, Mike, I think, and just said, this is not for you. <laughs> that would have been the teacher and that would have been so unfair. Well, she was very nice. She was very, very nice. And there were girls in the class who were streets ahead of the rest of us. And they should have just said kindly to us why don't you just go outside in the rain with your classmates but anyway it could have been worse but I mean that I think the fact that that's gone in there it just shows the impact that had on me mm. but when you think about it you can sing but you can't dance so you could never have been into pussycat dolls but you could have been to the Spice Girls well it's interesting you should bring it up in fact mm -hmm. Mike when I was at school I was also quite into um, amateur dramatics and stuff and um, I would have loved to have a sort of main part or something, but I would never have been given it because clearly the drama teacher was more clued up than the dance one. <laughs> this is a girl who can't move. We'll just stick her in the corner. I mean, it wasn't good, really. And again, I probably should quit that because I never attained, <laughs> I never attained my dream. Oh, never mind. You can't win at everything. But you certainly have won in other ways, I think. It's been really lovely. There you are, Julia, you see. We talked to you about things you've done, and I told you those other things would be covered. And they certainly have. And I think that if anybody's interested in the things you've been talking about, and they should be, then I would definitely go and look at every doctor and get involved, because it's important that we all stand up for this. I really absolutely believe that with all my heart. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me, because it's been so lovely to talk to you about all manner of things, which I sort of hadn't intended to, I suppose. But I suppose <laughs> that's what this podcast is for. Yep. But um, I really appreciate it. I really appreciate your support. And yeah, would love to hear from anyone who particularly opposes NHS prioritisation and you know, wants to stand up for, for staff and, and patients. And I suppose for anyone sort of sitting on the fence thinking, I don't know if this is really happening. I don't understand why people are getting het up about this. The organisation I run, we represent doctors and they're doctors who work in the NHS. And we've got no motivation to talk about this other than it's happening and it's not good for patients. You know, we're not going to gain anything. Whereas those who are sort of not being honest about this in the media do stand to gain something from pretending this isn't a problem, often financially. Be aware of that, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you so much. You have been listening to My Time Capsule, with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Dr. Julia Patterson. Please do search out every doctor and give it your support if you can. There's a link in the description of this episode. Right, you can subscribe to this podcast on all podcast providers, where you'll find lots of episodes with me talking to celebrities about the funny and sweet things they want to put in their time capsules, with hardly any politics at all, I promise. 
usually. You can follow me and my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, where we're happy to answer any of your questions and we'll let you know what we're up to and who's coming up on the podcast, plus the odd picture of me and my grandkids messing about. The theme tune you can hear in the background, which I'm sure you prefer to be in the foreground, was written by Pass the Peas Music. And you can listen to it anytime you like on Spotify with no talking over it. Just like that. Exciting, eh? This podcast was produced by John Fenton Stevens and was a cast-off production for Acast. So if you're looking for someone to help you make a podcast, get in touch with them. Just don't take up all their time because, let's face it, I can't do this on my own. I see little enough of my wife as it is. I, I mean, I try to keep the romance alive. I've already booked a table for next year's Valentine's. Yeah. I hope she likes snooker. Anyway, bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.